So Lent is a season of repentance and turning back to God, but with so many turning points in life, how do we navigate something as complicated as a whole life, God's ways? In week one, we started to look at the first of these five principles, and we saw that the Bible is God's primary mode of direction to us. And so if any way, if any direction that we receive is contrary to the word or countermands the word or encourages you to lay aside the word of God, then it must be wrong. It must be a wrong direction. And the last week, we started to look at the compelling spirit, that gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit himself And we saw that those who claim to speak for the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit will always use the word. And those listening should always test what they hear according to the word as well. This means if a preacher manages to get through a sermon somehow without even opening up the word of God and asking you to do the same, you should zone out or walk away. Whatever you do, make sure that you don't listen to them. That would be an absolute disaster. Because, of course, they went wrong at the first turn, and they will take you for a ride. Don't listen to a preacher who won't use the word. Of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't just speak through preachers with a bit of plastic around their neck and some old clothing. He can speak to anybody wherever he wants, in whatever way that he wants, because he is Lord. And he compels all of us, not just preachers, but all believers. And so if you want to know if that still quiet voice in your head or your heart really is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, then you need to be in the Word as well for yourself. You need to test yourself according to the Word. Week one, commanding scripture. Week two, compelling spirit. Week three, another C and another S. This is the counsel of the saints. And there is a key passage for us in the book of Acts, chapter 15. Let's turn to Acts 15. Uh, It's the fifth book of the New Testament. Acts, chapter 15. You see there in verse 11, they agree something. It's pretty cool. A church agrees And they uh, managed to agree in verse 11 something very important. They say, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. They agree that it is Christ's atoning work and sacrifice on the cross that leads us to God. Jesus is the way, as he said last week. He is the only way to everlasting life. They agree this to be true. If you want to be saved, then you must turn to Christ. Perhaps this is why six times, six different times in the book of Acts, the the church chooses to be known as the way. That was their name. That was their church name. They were the people of the way. Their church was the way. It's hodos in Greek, from which we get uh, the English word like like odometer on your car. It it means road, highway, journey, or way of life. They are the, the hodos. They are the way. And the problem for the people of the way, obviously there are not other ways. They've pretty much cornered the market with the the. The problem for the people of the way is that there were people living amongst them who thought there was another way, including 
the Jewish population that still predominated in that area and still, of course, followed the law for their Jewish friends and neighbors. The law was the way to God. It was obedience uh, to the law that got them right with God. And the Jews were claiming rather than grace, it was works of righteousness through the law that led them towards God. And they claimed to have, have a different and have a better way. So the Christians were looking at themselves and they were looking at their Jewish friends and neighbors and they were wondering how they could be sensitive to those people that they were trying to evangelize who felt differently to them. And without compromising their own freedom, how could they give a nod to the old law? It's a really tough subject. You know, how do you live out your religious freedom that you have in Christ in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary offense to people that think differently. It's a delicate subject. Uh, And the answer, the simple answer is, they choose to refrain from certain things for the time being. They give a nod to some of the major parts of the old law for a while. That's lovely. But in verse 28, far more interestingly for us, there's an explanation not just about what they uh, resolved to do, but more importantly, how they resolved to do it. There's a nod to the process that they went through of discernment. Verse 28 says this, Acts chapter 15, verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Very telling phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You could underline the two us. They navigate this complicated, delicate, sensitive, difficult process together with the counsel of the saints. Now, you might well have noticed the byline for this series and the unusual spelling of the word ways on the bulletin cover. Ways, if you're not familiar with it, is a navigation app for your phone. The dark days of the garment are dead. Hurrah! Woo! Uh, The beauty of Waze, the app for your phone, is that everyone who uses Waze transmits live data back and forth from the server to everyone else using it in real time. So when Waze tells you which way to go, the the, the data is always up to date and, and accurate. And all of the other users of Waze are known as the Wazers. Have you ever wondered? how it is that some of your friends manage to get to difficult places before you do. There's a whole community of wazers out there, all around the world, helping each other to navigate complicated cities like Pittsburgh. And the wazers will tell you about traffic jams and construction and potholes and and policemen. I've I've discerned uh, that the speed limit in Pennsylvania seems to be governed less by signs and more by whether there's a policeman present, it seems. <laughs> Not quite sure how that works, but there's definitely a correlation. Cat is a wazer. I am not a wazer. I'm old covenant. <laughs> I use maps. And uh, what that means is, usually, she arrives at a place before I do, a few minutes before me, and then she sits around for a few minutes waiting for me until she gets a phone call from me that goes something like this. Uh, Hi, honey. Um, I'm somewhere that doesn't quite look right. I know we're nearly there, but it's not right. There's, um, there's, a, there's a medical waste dumpster next to me. 
some really shady looking characters hovering around it and there's an old broken sign that says this place was once something called a Burlington Coat Factory, whatever that may be. <laughs> Sounds dreadful, you know, where are you? Where am I? Can you beep your horn, you know? I see my head out the window. Uh, you know, drop a pin, tell me where you are. Uh, guys, we, we need to find in our life some spiritual wazers. Someone else who is, is on the same journey. Someone else who can help us navigate life and, and, and find our own spiritual way. One of the reasons why I love the Anglican form of governance of church is that it is so agreeable with the word. The, the decisions we make in our church are made like the decisions in the book of Acts. They're made synodically. They're made in council with council. They're made together. Of course, not all council is equal, is it? Not every bit of advice you get is going to be good advice, is it? Let's turn to the Old Testament book of First Kings. If you don't know where First Kings is, you have a 1 in 39 chance of just getting it right. Which is not too bad, is it? People play the lottery with worse odds. There's also a 2 Kings, so actually, really easy. First Kings, chapter 12. And uh, thank you for the loud turning of the Bible. Just encourages the congregation. I don't know if you dropped it or if that was just good leadership, but I'm, I'm encouraged. 1 Kings chapter 12, and uh, Israel's most famous king, David, is dead. His son Solomon has built the great temple. It is the high point in Jewish history, but Solomon has gone off the rails. The worship of false gods has become prevalent in Israel, and Solomon's rule has descended into an unnecessarily harsh regime. And Solomon dies now, and young Rehoboam takes over. He is The same age as me at this point, which is young. (laughs) The Bible calls it young, which means I am young. (laughs) Verse 3, the assembly of Israel, the representatives of the tribes, come to this virile, handsome, young preacher, and they they say this. (laughs) So this is called asegesis, where you read too much into Scripture, (laughs) and I repent. Take a drink. 1 Kings 12.3. Now, this is what they say to the king. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Just be a nice king, will you? And they're using an agricultural image for us, the, describing the life under King Solomon as burdensome with the image of the, the yoke of the oxen, the heavy collar, that, that they've been put to work, and it's hard, forced labor and they're tired, and they're worn down, and they are discouraged, and they're asking this new king, what kind of a king will you be? What kind of direction will you lead us in, they ask. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men. You can read this word, elders. More common translation by a long way, elders. Those who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was still yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? What is your advice? It is plainly the counsel of the saints that he is seeking. It's a good start. He says at the beginning of his new rule, what do the wazers think? What do those who have walked in the way of God and the counsel of Scripture, what do they think? 
And the wazers, the elders, they say to him this, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Here is their advice. Good leadership is always servant-hearted. A good leader will always put people above themselves. And we can test this advice. We know how to do it because we're on week three already. Go back to week one. You can test this advice. You can test it against the commandments of Scripture. Is this godly advice? What does Jesus say about this sort of thing? I mean, they couldn't do it because they hadn't had the New Testament yet, but we can cheat. We can do it. Mark chapter 10, Jesus answering the same question. He says quite clearly, whoever would be great among you must be your servant like he is. He is the servant king. Be like Jesus. But, there's a huge problem. But, verse 8, that usually means something wrong is going to happen. Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men or the elders, the wazers gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. What do my mates think, he says. It's a slightly colloquial word here uh, for youths or lads. What do the lads think? What do the boys think? Uh, One translation even translates this phrase, young men, as apostate Israelites. You know, what do they think? Was that title not a red flag to him, I wonder? You know, we've heard from the elders, what do the apostate Israelites think? Surely, you know, they've got something sensible to say. Ridiculous. The comedian Amy Schumer has a new show on Netflix. And uh, you may be aware that Amy Schumer is pregnant at the moment. And uh, she said this week that she's got into the habit of asking her friends for recommendations and advice about her pregnancy and just basically asking them all until she gets the answer that she wants. She said she'd been thinking about drinking alcohol during pregnancy, and she asked her most responsible friend, a nurse, uh, she said, so, uh, wine, what do you think about wine during pregnancy then? And uh, her nurse friend said, you know, yeah, I think it's probably best that you just skip it, really. Hmm, she thought. So she asked a little bit more of a lenient of a friend who said, well, you know, one glass a week is probably fine. So she said that she asked her biggest dirtbag deadbeat of a friend who advised, ah, you know, nature will take care of it for you. Just drink as much as you like until you pass out. That's your body's way of stopping you from doing something too much, I think. You know, people are into natural birthing techniques, aren't they? You know, that sort of thing at the moment. You know, what what could be more natural than this? Just drink something that nature provided until nature takes its course. Well, uh, you can pretty much do the same thing in church. I've seen it. Where you ask me something, and I tell you exactly what you feared I would tell you. So you go and ask Tracy what Tracy thinks. (laughs) And Tracy will tell you the exact same thing, because guess what, guys? She reads the same book. So you go around the whole staff team and the whole vestry polling them for their opinions on some matter and they all tell you more or less the exact same thing until you finally give up and you ask the question that everyone gives up when they've heard a load of godly advice. What does the internet say? (laughs) 
Here we go, just a ticket. What's that website again? Uh, take it down, why don't you? www.makingitupasweGoalong and telling people what their itching ears want to hear.com. That sounds perfectly valid as a place to get godly advice. What could possibly go wrong? Rehoboam does a Google. <laughs> he asks the apostate Israelites, what could possibly go wrong? He asks the lads, the teenage dirtbags. Verse 9, what do you advise? Those of you not familiar with the particular song by the Van Wietus will know it's not an insult. It's a self-adopted motif of the young uh, bucks of the early 1990s, that's all. Uh, verse 9, what do you advise? And their advice, verse 10, was this. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. It's a common proverbial saying in the ancient Near East. The translators have cleaned it up a little for us because the word could be little finger, but it could also perhaps be another similarly shaped uh, thing appended to his person, perhaps. This is a call to boast. That's what this is. Why don't you prove yourself and outdo Solomon in demonstrating just how virile you are. Well, that's not very wise. Solomon had a thousand wives. I'm not sure that this is really the place where you want to be taking him on, you know. Why not, you know, do arm wrestles or something, you know. Axe throwing, you know. I wouldn't go with this one. Uh, anyway, they, they, they play to his ego. They play to his insecurities about himself. They, they build that up. You know, why don't you? You've got to demonstrate that you're more of a man than he was. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. I'm the main man now. And also, while they're on a roll, they continue to advise him to say this. Whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. He gave you one collar. I'll give you two collars. I'll make you carry the ox as well. See how you like that? And my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Not real ones. The, the scorpion was a whip of cords. Uh, unlike the one Solomon used, it had nails and sharp, jagged pieces of metal sewn into the ends of the cords. What my father did, I will double down and make worse. I will oppress you even more. That's the advice of his friends. The response is clear, verse 16, the people left. They just leave. The kingdom is torn in two, and they have the ancient Near Eastern version of a Brexit, an Isrexit. And it all could have been avoided if only they had listened to the counsel of the saints. So Christians, number one, make your decisions together. Number two, test the advice that you get to see if it is consistent with Scripture. How else might we discern whether the advice we are getting is really the advice of the Wazers or the apostate Israelites? Hindsight, of course, that's wonderful, isn't it? We can look back at old decisions and say, well, that was a disaster. But what do you do when you're really on the magic roundabout of life and you're confused or parked up outside of a spiritual dumpster filled with medical waste? How do you find the way? And how do you know a waser from a waster. Let's turn to the gospel passage, shall we? Matthew 7, verse 13. So we're in Matthew 7, verse 13, our gospel appointed for the day. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, 
for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The default way is wrong. The default way is the wrong way. And you must leave that way and enter a new way to go the right way. We must turn to God before we can be on the right way. Simple question, have you turned? Have you repented? That's what Lent is all about. Have you turned to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through him. Have you turned? If you have not, if you have not got a testimony of turning to God, maybe you turned to God as a baby and have lived your whole life, maybe you had a radical conversion in your 40s, but if you have not turned to God and have no story of turning, uh, then you are going the wrong way. Only those who have turned are going the right way. And saints, wazers, it is far, far, far easier not to turn. 4 verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This is the great irony of the Christian faith. Salvation, we heard, they declared it in verse 11 of of Acts. Salvation is free. Salvation is found in Christ alone. It's not just easy, it is completely free. His work on the cross paid for it in full. And we are called onto his way by grace alone. But the irony is, in our fallen mindset, in a spin on the magic roundabout of life, keen to go our own way and work things out ourselves, worried about what the world thinks and worried about what the world thinks and worried about what the crowd thinks, we are far, far more likely to take on the wrong advice and do the thing that suits us than to turn to Jesus Christ. Turning to Christ often feels very difficult. We start to think about those things we give up on the narrow way. We start to think about the people we leave behind on the broad way. Um, We don't like to leave a crowd. That's just not what humans like to do. Most people like to be with most people. We don't like leaving the crowd. But most advice you get will be wrong. Because most people are lost. And that means if you seek the approval of the people around you and the advice of the people around you and you take your direction from the people around you, you most likely will go wrong. We spend most of our lives bombarded with information, most of it unsolicited, through the mailbox and in the email and on the TV. And most of the advice that we are given is coming from people who are not on the way. The counsel of the lost. Jesus ties this point to the next one. Beware, he says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Some of those people on the broad path aren't just lost. They know what they're doing and they're deliberately trying to mislead you. So how do you recognize them? How do you know if someone giving you direction is giving you false directions? Some further test is needed. Week one was a theological test. Are they in the word? Week two was a doctrinal test. Are they pointing to Jesus? Now week three, we have an ethical test right here. Does anything in their life look good? Does it pass pass the, the sniff test? How do you recognize them? How do you know someone is giving you a bum steer and sending you on the wrong way? 
Verse 16, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Bad fruit, bad tree, bad advice, bad way. Fruit is a motif in the Bible uh, for the way in which we manifest the thing inside. It's the thing that is revealed, the thing that grows. It's the way you live. It's your way of life. It's what you do. They would know this image well. It's almost certainly an Old Testament image, the idea of fruit, good and bad fruit. Jesus is probably keying into a passage from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. No need to look at it, but Jeremiah 2 gives some examples of bad fruit. Uh, Bloodshed is bad fruit. Jesus takes this image of bloodshed, he amplifies it, he says, any kind of angry feelings is bad fruit. False worship, just worshipping other gods. Lust, that uncontrolled doing of stuff and wanting to do stuff that you shouldn't do. Mingling religions. Do they have a coexist bumper sticker? Bad fruit. Just taking Yahweh and saying, let's cobble a bit of Buddhism along with that. I'm sure they'll both like it. That's the kind of thing that was going on in Israel, and that is bad fruit. Obsessions with possessions. Is the God of your life all the things in your life? If God calls you to lay down or give up or use for the kingdom something that you own, will you hold on tight and say, hands off, Yahweh, that one's mine? An obsession with possession. Attacks on church leaders. Now, you can disagree with us, but be nice, please. Well, I'll set Tracy on you. <laughs> Actually, you should see Connie angry. <laughs> Neglecting the poor. You know, just can you see a homeless guy in a doorway and, and give him a dollar? Or do you kick him in the face? There's pretty much a good litmus test as to what your fruit is. And above all, ignoring God. Are you able to live out your days without any reference to the Lord? That is bad fruit. Christian decisions are made in Christian counsel. By default, most of the advice that you get in this life will be wrong, and that is because most people are wrong. But the counsel of the saints will always be consistent with Scripture, and it will always bear good fruit. So ask yourself. Someone purports to be a waser and give you some good advice. Does that advice lead to peace? and purity, and faithfulness? Does it lead to generosity, and humility, and care for people? And above all, does it lead to more, and more, and more of God? Does it make you hungry for Jesus? Does it set you on fire to Jesus? Does it give you a new zeal for the Lord, a new passion for the lost? Does it drive you into the arms of the Father of grace, and lead you to the holy communion rail, almost with a spring in your step, and tears in your eyes, believing there will be a fresh start and desperate for other people to share in it with you? Or does it lead you to a dumpster full of spiritual medical waste? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God of grace, Lord of life, we thank you that you are the way and you have called us to yourself. And so we pray, Lord, as we navigate life, bombarded with advice, some of it good, some of it bad, that we would learn to test such counsel against your holy scriptures, that we would hear that inner compelling voice of the Holy Spirit, and that we would 
be gifted other believers in our life who would help us along the way. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. sit or kneel to pray. And Heavenly Father, we pray for your church today. We pray, Lord God, for the people of the way. Would you guide us further and deeper into our walk with you? We pray for those who have uh, the responsibility of leading us, especially uh, we pray for Jim, our bishop. We pray for the canons of this diocese. We pray for Jonathan and his ministry to other clergy, to, for Tracy uh, in her ministry to the youth and the leaders of young people. And we pray for Karen in her ministry uh, to young Christian leaders. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for at the council of the saints in our own church, the vestry. God, we pray for those elders, those nine men and women of God, we pray that you would lead them into a deeper walk with you. We pray that as they look back on their walk with you on the way, uh, maybe they look back a year and two and five and ten years, what they see is an increasing zeal and passion for your gospel, for the lost, uh, for your love, for your power, for healing, for joy, for blessing in their homes, for protection of their families. We pray that you would anoint our vestry, that they'd be filled with laughter and joy and love. And we thank you, Lord God, for the many signs of fruit in that body's life. God, would we, that are not members of the vestry, look to that example and, and, and be jealous and want in? God, would we be a body that deepens and grows and thrives? that is excited and, and released and uh, feels filled with optimism and zeal to invite people to join us. Break our hearts for the lost, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those amongst us who are suffering, some of us very greatly indeed. 
Lord, you are grieved by all human suffering more even than we are. You seek to gather us in under your wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. You're a tender God and a loving God and yet a powerful and fierce holy God. And so in confidence, we ask you to intervene in the lives of any who are suffering amongst us, knowing that you already know their suffering and care for that more than even we do. We are bold to name them aloud before you in the hope of healing. And there are two sisters amongst us battling cancer in this season. And we pray your blessing on them. Amen.